This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Celia Narduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is with me too. Lucy, hello. Hello, how are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. I always think about it. I always take a deep breath, but the answer is usually <laughs> I'm, I'm all right. Um, it was you, Lucy, who raised the idea of lockdown challenges. So I'm afraid you only have your, yourself to blame for this next question. Have you memorised Beowulf in its entirety or learnt Arabic in this most recent lockdown? Well, fear no need, because obviously both of those skills I had already. Um, I was thinking, did I raise the idea of lockdown challenges? But you I did. definitely did. I got, it was like in lockdown, you know, 1.0 or 2. When it was still fresh. Yes, it was. <laughs> um, so I have I read to the Cazalet Chronicles, trying to get hold of the second. Uh, and I found out what's going to happen in the future. How about that for a lockdown challenge? What is going to happen in the future? Well, it takes quite a long time. I read um, Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson's The Ministry of the Future, which uh, is a look at what might happen about climate change in the world. Um, and it's jolly interesting. And it took a while for me to get into it. Um, but I'm not going to tell you. No spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> Just have to wait and see what happens in the future. But it's a, I was thinking about it's a thought experiment. It's a silly thing to think because all novels are thought experiments. But this really does feel like a really big one. He's very good at great big projects, Kim Stanley Robinson. Um, and it's yes, it's it's a kind of mapping of what might happen in reaction to climate change, what the world might do about it and how society and the world might change. So um, so I know that now. That's good. I'm glad that you know that. Maybe at some point you could you could share share a little more detail with me. Uh, in the meantime, though, coming up on this week's show, Zachary Leader reports on the origins and preoccupations of the booming or blooming Joyce industry and Jane O'Grady on what the Enlightenment really meant and how it undid itself. But first, it can never be a bad thing to understand the history of your subject. Never. So says our classics editor, Mary Beard, who joins us on the line now to tell us more. Hello, Mary. Nice to be with you. <laughs> so you're with us to talk about the history of the classics as a subject, or rather why in the teaching of the subject it's important to include an awareness of the ways in which figures and ideas have been adopted, represented and used over time, fascism being probably the most obvious case study, I guess. Uh, that's the kernel of a recent piece from your Don's Life column. Yeah, um, I think what I wanted to say was that right now in the professional study of classics, I'm not sure how far it's gone outside this, there's a huge uh, concentration on the uses to which classics has been put over the last 100, 200 years. Right? And it's it, it tends to, not always, but it tends to be very, very gloomy story, right? And some of that gloom is is amply justified. You know, classics has underpinned racism. It has underpinned white supremacy. It has underpinned fascism. Um, and uh, there's no doubt. I wanted to just to point out that that is one side of the story that we need to look at. But there are other sides of the story. Here. <laughs> you know that that you know, classics has, in some ways, in nineteenth century, it it uh, legitimated. Uh, universal male suffrage. 
it gave a legitimation to male homosexuality, looking back to 5th century Greece. And it certainly did do a lot for... um, the the kind of bolstering of a, of a fascist aesthetic but don't let's forget Freud who comes out of you know, a really intense engagement with the classical tradition and what everybody did Karl Marx do his PhD on Greek philosophy so I wanted to say look hang on everybody there are things to celebrate and things to deplore. Is it in a sense that it it was when you're studying classics, you also have to think about how classics is thought about and taught. It's as though you're doing historiography while studying history as well. Yeah, I mean, I think so. And I think that should be the case with every subject. Just classics has got such a long history that it somehow is um, even harder to, to ignore. But you know, for me, uh, classics is not just the study of the ancient world. It's the study of what has happened to that study since the ancient world between then and now. You know, it's a very thick subject. And you know, I'd like to think that, that every subject you know, really needs to, to look at its, at its history. I mean, you know, people talk about classics being toxic. Um, well, yeah, I know why they say that. But, you know, I hope nuclear physicists are thinking about the literal toxicity of nuclear physics. Um, and that's not to blame anybody now, but it's just to say we need to look at the history of our subject, uh, whatever subject that is, in the eye. We need to look at who it's attracted, who it's who it's excluded, um, what to what uses it's been put, who learnt it, who didn't learn it, uh, and and so on. And you know what? You can't ever get a balance sheet. You know, I, I think to say, mm, on balance, I think classics has been better than worse, right? But I think you can start to say there are all kinds of complex ways that classics has had an impact or been used in modern culture and modern politics. And one needs to be sure that one looks at the complexity, you know, not just at the either the bad or, I think, you know, when I was a student, you know, we didn't see the bad, we only saw the good. I think either of these is a wildly simplistic way of looking at a subject. So it was an attempt to say, let's think a bit more nuancedly. And to do this, you um, when you, you come well prepared because you're able to take us back. I've, I, I lament the absence of some kind of musical cue here from the Stone Roses or something, but take us back to the 90s, Mary. Yes. <laughs> Because I, uh, when I was thinking about this, I remembered that uh, that in the the early nineties, then again the end of the decade, around the the turn of the millennium, colleague and I actually did a two very similar courses for uh, final year undergraduates in Cambridge about the history of classics. Um, partly because we were already seeing, you know, there was something that we need to you know, encourage students to broach and look in the eye without without simply taking sides. And so I, I went to my office. This was long before everything that you've ever taught is uh, on your laptop. You know, now if I wanted to find out what my courses had been 10 years ago, I'd just kind of... I, I, I would just search my machine. This was a bit before then. So I went and I found some old box files. And I got the stuff out and I found... You know, disjecta membra of these courses and some exam papers which I think exam papers are always a good way of understanding what the course was teaching and so I thought there was some quite good questions which people might like to have a go on themselves. They were they were brilliant questions yeah it's, it's a sort of I had a feeling this is a real confession and just about what a bad student I was that I used to get sometimes in exams and I would look at the questions and think gosh this is really interesting and straight after that I would think I wish I'd worked a bit more. <laughs> but that's Sorry that's my problem not yours. Yeah, what what was interesting for me is I, you know, I was I was quite. I wouldn't have put them on my blog if I'd been really embarrassed about them, would I? I'd have I'd have concealed them, but I thought it was quite interesting because it it did reveal slightly different preoccupations of what pretty well thirty years ago now. I mean, we did, for example, a bit about race in these courses, but we did much more about class 
we did much more about the exclusion of women and the exclusion of the British working class. I think if we were doing the courses now, we would think much more about um, race and diversity. Um, and we were very, very preoccupied, um, and I think rightly, but again, perhaps with more of an edge than it would be the case now, we were very preoccupied with elitism, you know, and whether, you know, classics in the end had bolstered not just elite cultural values, though in some ways that's clear, but whether it had also really been bolstered snobbery. Now, maybe actually with some members of the current Tory government, one might think it's that that question is getting, you know, its edge back again. Bit of a given. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I'm just looking at the questions now. And the first question was really about um, poetry, um, very tls kind of subject. And it just said dryads, hyads, naiads, oriads, pliads. Does classical influence in modern poetry always come down to snobbery and elitism. Now, I do want to say that I think that any student who answered that question in an hour and just said, yeah, of course it does, you know, all classical influences really is about snobbery, would not have got a great mark, you know, and I think that you'd have wanted to get students, we did want to get students to think about how there's two sides of this, that you know, to, just to write off classics as if it's, you know, a justification for being posh and showing that you know more than somebody else would actually end up ignoring some of the important intellectual uses and the, you know, the cultural power that, you know, classics still has. Now, again, you know, now I suppose, you know, 30 years later, if looking at modern literature, we would say, hey, hang on a bit. I'm not sure I'm talking about poetry here, but you know, looking at novels, I think that we'd be very keen to stress that um, modern writers or fiction, writers of fiction have used classical mythology in ways that entirely or very largely transcended our kind of the accusation of snobbery. So these questions are quite, you know, they, they challenge you. But if you think there's a simple answer to them, you'd be wrong. Mm. Question 10, what goes when classics goes? That was my uh, That favorite. feels particularly sort of loaded and, and dramatic. Yes. And it was, you know, it was an attempt, again, to get, get students to, you know, to see what the subject represented. And, and uh, you know, insofar as I remember the answers to these, which is only very vaguely, I mean, there are people who were answering that by, by saying, look, classics is somehow a kind of building block of traditional conservative power in this country. And when it goes, even though I'm having a great time studying it myself, you know, in your course, when it goes, a lot of bad things go with it. And many of these questions were really trying to get people to see that easy answers to what the role of an intellectual discipline is are always wrong, you know? So we were looking, we were looking for complexity, really, and people thinking through partly their own experience of what it's like doing classics, but partly also thinking about what the costs have been, you know, and there's, you know, there's absolutely no doubt that certainly in the 19th century and longer, the British elite used the study of Latin in particular, Greek never quite so much, as a, a gatekeeper, you know, as a social and uh, political sometimes gatekeeper to keep out people who didn't want. But even so, if you if you didn't have it, then how much really wonderful poetry and myth and literature would not be available to anyone. And that's, I would say that's the argument that you teach Latin and Greek to everyone. That's, that's right. And I, mean, I think also as um, the book by Edith Hall and Henry Stead has recently shown about working class engagement with classics is that there are also other ways in which people get familiar with classics. You know, the professional educators, you know, tend to think that classics is what you do at school and it's, um, it's your irregular verbs and then you go to university and it's mm. very much an institutional thing. Whereas actually, and again, this underlays some of the things in these questions, 
people learn classics in all kinds of different ways. And, that, you know, I'm partly talking about, you know, autodidacts and um, trade union movements where, you know, the struggles of the Roman plebs was often a very important part of trade union history. But you learn classics through film. I mean, I think it's it's very interesting when you go to to talk at a general meeting and you might say to people, just do you know anything about the classical world? And the answer will often be, oh no, 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 I, I really don't. I've come, I, I don't know a thing. But you know, you press a little bit, and you know, going back a few years now, but uh, they know about gladiators. They've seen the movie Gladiator. They know what the Colosseum's for. There's quite a lot of. Um... There's a lot of really good kids' books as well. So I think a lot of kids now would say they've learned it, they've uh, or imbibed it, not learned. That might be the wrong word. Um, through um, books and cartoons and uh, graphic novels, all that, all that sort of stuff. There's some really creative, interesting stuff going on. In fact, there's a brilliant new video game called Hades, <laughs> which I've learned a bit from. Let me tell you, it's really good. <laughs> Uh, I won't. I won't go on about it. That could be for another podcast, maybe. You know, I think it's. You know, as soon as you start pressing at these questions, you see that you know there's an awful lot more to the history of classics than being the legitimator of fascist architecture, even though that was part of the story. Was this? Um, well, I suppose this is two questions. A was this a popular course? You know, did you find students kind of coming coming alive in, in in on this module? And then also has has this way of teaching it sort of now been spread out across in most institutions? Obviously, it will vary wildly from institution to institution. But would you say that in general it has been spread out this concern across the teaching? It's been absorbed rather than requiring its own module. I'd like to be so optimistic. But I, but I mean, just going back to the course at the time, uh, it was one of the most exciting courses I'd ever taught, you know, partly because back then people didn't really think about the history of the subjects they were doing. And I suppose in part that answers your second question here. But I mean, I remember we spent quite a lot of time having people talk about how they got into classics, you know, at school, you know, what kind of teachers they'd had. And some of those were idiosyncratic stories and everybody's story was slightly different, but it did reveal, you know, there were patterns to what, to, to how people got into it. And we have, I mean, one of the questions that we've got in this exam paper is have ancient Greek and Latin rightly been presented and taught as difficult languages? Now, quite a lot of our students back then used to say, I got into it because my, my teachers said that I would really thrive on doing something difficult. <laughs> and so they recommended I did Latin because that would be intellectually challenging. So it, it, there was a kind of sense in which classics advertised itself as difficult. Now, there's nothing more or less difficult about Latin than there is about any language. It's just that there are some things that are very hard to read in it. But you know, um, but there is a mystique, you know. And part of the what happened in classics, I think, was a social and cultural mystique. But part of it was this kind of it was what the really brainy kids did. So a lot of these people who then ended up in Cambridge doing classics, they'd they'd been they'd been kind of singled out to do it. So there was there was good chat about the different forms of elitism, both bad and good. It also sounds a bit off-putting, doesn't it? A bit eat your veg, come and do Latin because it's really difficult. Uh, come and do Latin, it's really difficult, but actually kids can be quite counter-suggestible. <laughs> and, and, yeah. you know, I think that there was, there were also was very small classes. I mean, I'm sure, look, if you'd gone to some big old-fashioned public school, you'd have found the whole lot of them doing Latin, but in most schools that the kids had been to. It was a very kind of privileged thing to do because there was a very small class. There was, there was three of you doing Latin A-level. And so you had a completely different relationship with the teacher. And people remembered their classics teachers absolutely vividly. And I remember always used to, used to, 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 to claim, I'm not sure it's true, that people remembered their class, their Latin teacher so much more vividly than anybody ever remembered their geography teacher. And, I, and you know, that wasn't because there weren't great geography teachers, but because classics and the process of learning classics did have this very intimate kind of style to it. 
But Theo, you also asked about whether this now isn't necessary. Uh, and whether this has been incorporated. Oh, no, I mean, not, not sorry, just, just to clarify, not so much that I think it's necessary, unnecessary now, but just whether that, that self-reflexiveness has been, has been absorbed and built in more. No, sure, that's right. You, you don't need a special court. Like, like, you know, like you might say, I'm not sure this is right, that, you know, we used to have loads of courses about women in the ancient world, you know, somehow as if it was a special thing. They were there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now you expect any course that you teach in classics to include um, women as well as men. You know, it's, um, so in a sense, it, the, the success of those old courses is, is revealed in that they don't, you don't seem to need them quite so much anymore because, because they won. Um, uh, to some extent, I think that that's true about this course. And I think there's a lot more in almost every classics department now about the reception of classics you know, about you know, Derek Walcott and, and the Odyssey, um, performance, modern performances of Greek tragedy and so forth. I, I think that the idea of, of undergraduates as a kind of absolutely essential part of their course, you know, uh, thinking about the history of it, I think that we didn't win on that. Um, these were subjects that were done, these were courses that were done by people who opted to do them, they weren't for everybody. Now, I think what's quite interesting is that now our undergraduates, who are very kind of concerned about the toxicity of the subject, want this to be a kind of compulsory element, you know, and I find myself, you know, and this is where you know, being 66 is, is both a blessing and a curse. I find myself saying, don't imagine that you invented this subject. You know, I was teaching this before you were born, sunshine. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, I predict, I think there's already plans in Cambridge that we, we will in the next couple of years be having a much more mainstream course about the history of classical scholarship and its impact and its effects and you know in some ways this would be this this course has kind of been resurrected in a slightly different form okay um well mary beard then if you just want would like to choose one question from your list of 10 the one that is closest to your heart uh, to, to set as a challenge to our listeners <laughs> uh, right well shall i it's, it's quite hard but um our listeners can handle that i'm confident okay uh, okay, <laughs> let's have, quite, let's have quite, of course, they're, they're extremely self-selected um, <laughs> bunch of things. Um, has classics traditionally harboured and sanctioned deviance from and transgression against the norms of modern society? Because that was a question. Let me just give you a hint, oh, listener, if you're thinking of doing that, that uh, there is a very sort of strong version that you often hear that classics is always legitimates the conservative you know prince charles conservative architecture classical architecture right well what about the ways that classics has sanctioned deviance can i have an- i'm thinking of dh lawrence immediately that might be, i think i'm thinking be- about catullus all these would be very good starts to your essays. So, Can okay. I do my essay on number 10, please? <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say that actually on Mary's blog, all t- 10 questions are there. So if people want to, to look at all 10 questions, that's where they are. People are allowed to choose their own, though. Yes. Has chosen one for you. Answers on a postcard. A really, really long one. So <laughs> really more, long more of a scroll, really. <laughs> you have one hour only. That's not Mary- enough. Mary Bird, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, everybody. Still to come on the show, Zachary Leader on the latest offerings from the Joyceans and Jane O'Grady on the complexities of the Enlightenment and how we remember it.
would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Theolyn Arduzzi here with Lucy Dallas. And Lucy, if I say to you, epiphanies and kidneys, you say? Well, apart from being a bit surprised by your sudden <laughs> outbursts about epiphanies and kidneys, Thea, I would think about James Joyce if you said that. And those words, I think, would be like a beacon to the Joyce industry, which is a whole set of schools of thought and study based around this one author. Zachary Leader, Emeritus Professor of English Literature at the University of Roehampton and working on a book called Elman's Joyce, A Biography, has written about this Joyce industry, past and present, for us. And he joins us today. Hello, Zachary. Many thanks for talking to us about Joyce and his industry. Pleased to do so. Um, first of all, can I? this is a horrible and rather big question, I'm afraid. Can you talk us through how and principally where this industry started? It's thought to have started in the United States. It's a post-war phenomenon. It partly has to do with the expansion of higher education in the United States. And also the wealth of these universities allowed them to buy important Joyce manuscripts. It's also sometimes said to be a product of a kind of indifference or hostility on the part of English critics. So, um, the, the highfalutin um, interpretations of American academics were scoffed at. So it grew up mostly in America. But one of the things about um, about it now is that it's quite international. It's not just an American phenomenon. It's, uh, it's worldwide, actually. It's European as well as British and uh, very active in, in Ireland as, as well as, as in, in the United Kingdom. Going back to that early hostility um, of the English view, I like William Carlos Williams's line, which he, which he quote, he says, this English view is the opportunity of America to see large, larger than England can. It's quite a challenge. <laughs> yes, it is funny. It is withering and it's rather brave in a way. I, I mean, his great champion, unbelievably now, it seems, is, uh, is Trollope and Anthony Trollope. Maybe not unbelievably, but he makes a case for... Uh, a social realism, which at least uh, in recent decades has uh, has been under the hammer from critical theorists, people who've been influenced by post-structuralism and so forth. And no, no, uh, social realism has its truths. It's not the case that it's the fabrication that a Derrida or a, a 
Lacan would have one believe. Well, having said that, I mean, at the time, people thought Joyce was, I mean, you could argue that Joyce was social realism because it was much more about, uh, um, in quote marks, real life, because it was very bodily and very quotidian and all of those things. Absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, there's another kind of strain of Joyce's writing, which is extreme interest to uh, uh, critics now who write about gender and sexuality and uh, and the influence of consumer capitalism, uh, the epicenter of which uh, one of the uh, books I was reviewing lay in, in Paris and, uh, and Joyce was deeply indebted to his times in Paris, both in 1902 and three, and then for 20 years from 1920 to 1940, and influenced not just by experimental French writers, but by the theater of goods and, and senses, uh, the Circe episode in, in Ulysses comes directly out of his experience uh, with cabaret and uh, nightclubs and so forth. Um, and if we so if we if we um, talk about these three new books, which you say are fairly um, typical of products of the Joyce industry, um, and the first one is called Joyce and the Matter of Paris. I mean, as as you say, it's about the kind of daily life and physical sensations. But what it, it's also an intellectual matter, isn't it? It's also about style. Uh, absolutely, um, he was much um, influenced. The author of this uh, book, uh, Catherine Flint, says by a quote of Baudelaire's when he said that um, what he sought for was a prose poetique. And he felt he wasn't equal to the challenge of finding such a prose poetique. And Flynn argues that Joyce took up this challenge to bring to prose the qualities of contemporary poetry. So if that's what you mean, then yes, um, absolutely. Uh, she writes very well about, about it, better than I have uh, tried to explain it. And uh, of the three books, I, for me at least, it was the strongest. The second book you say, it's about Jesuitical training, which if, I mean, tell me if, I got, if I've got this wrong, Jesuitical training sort of read backwards through um, using psychoanalytic methods. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Well, it's, it's central argument is that uh, uh, Joyce's Jesuit education was the source of a central feature of his writing which at almost every sentence is carefully structured to prevent one from fixing on a single meaning. It's uh, ambivalence, frustration, and loss at every, at every sentence. And he argues that a, a state of mind in which there are several uh, interpretations of any event or phenomenon derives from a, a mentality, which he thinks of as a Jesuit mentality, the mentality of his teachers, what Michael Mayo does is, is he connects this to the psychoanalytic theories of, of Melanie Klein, who has different sort of stages of development, but who suggests same sorts of frustrations and losses coming into an attempt to ne negotiate the, uh, the claims of the inner world and the outer world. But he then goes on to say, well, this is really no different from the, the insights of post-structuralists like Lacan, but also Derrida, Kristeva and Sisu, all of whom uh, wrote on Joyce and all of whom could be mapped onto this central feature of uh, Joyce's writing, what he sees as the central feature of Joyce's writing and connects to his Jesuit education. For me, at least, joining them all together leads to what I call terminological logjam. Very, very hard to read some parts of, uh, uh, of this book. Mm -hmm. And um, the third book <laughs> is called Pan Epiphanal World um, and is a, is a study of, of what Joyce called epiphanies. Can you, again, this is a horrible question, I apologise in advance, can you define um, what Joyce meant by epiphanies for us? I can, helped along by the author of this uh, book. He says share, they share an, an absolute claim to truth through the manifestation of divine being. All of a sudden, down comes Athena to solve the problem, or you know, deus ex machina, or all of a sudden, God appears in a flash, and so forth. Biblical and classical epiphanies are moments of divine revelation. Romantic epiphanies are instances of revelation which are located not in some external supernatural figure, but either in the perceiver's consciousness 
or in the nature of the things perceived. Suddenly, some insight is brought about in a moment. That's an epiphany. Joyce's epiphanies are quite different because they're they're certainly not manifestations of divinity, and they're certainly not manifestations of the of a kind of romantic insight into the true connection, say, between the perceiver and the perceived. They're moments that of of kind of everyday experience. It's hard to see why they matter. And yet he recycled them through his work as though they really, there were 40 of them uh, originally, as though somehow they had a special meaning. It's hard to discern what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and finally, do you think then that the Joyce industry is is uh, healthy and turning up fruitful lines of thought and, and, and kind of productive and forward-looking or, or do you think it's stuck in navel gazing and um, sort of puzzle solving, or, or or is it somewhere in between? Well, it, it really does depend upon your um, perspective. I mean, at the beginning of the review, um, I I quote uh, this man Oliver uh, John uh, Gogarty, who's the model for Buck Mulligan in uh, in uh, Ulysses. He says that that that, that Joycians are are not just uh, uh, academics who have an interest in the life and writing of, of Joyce, but they have a, a certain attitude towards literature and experience, a certain capacity to relish without feeling threatened or becoming defensive, the imperfect world in all its multiplicity and messiness. Well, that sounds rather wonderful. Yes, I think it's very well put, um, uh, but not everybody uh, 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 feels this way. Uh, um, and uh, you do end up with the same meaning in this strand of Joyce criticism. You do end up with a sense of the impossibility of it. Well, with what, with what one critic calls hermeneutic bewilderment, the impossibility of, of finding a, a fixed uh, meaning, except in except the meaning that you can't find the fix. I mean, there, there's your truth that you can't find any fixed truth. Perfect. Sounds very 2021. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Well, many thanks, Zachary Leedy, for guiding us through the Joycean maids and for showing us that there is no fixed truth. All right, well, thanks a lot. Before we move on to the Enlightenment, a quick missive from Harvard University Press about a new book by the political theorist Mark Steens. The premise is that both the left and the right have lost faith in ordinary people and must learn to find it again. Out of the Ordinary, this new book reminds us that we have been here before. From the 1920s to the 1950s, extreme ideologies of left and right fueled utopian hopes and dystopian fears. And in response, a group of British writers and artists, including J.B. Priestley, George Orwell, Barbara Jones and Dylan Thomas, offered a way out. They had no formal connection to one another, but each worked to forge a politics that resisted the empty idealisms and totalizing abstractions of their time. In poems, novels, essays, paintings and photographs, they gave witness to everyday people's ability to overcome the supposedly insoluble contradictions between tradition and progress, patriotism and, and diversity, nationalism and internationalism, conservatism and radicalism. And it was this vision, says Stearns, that animated the Festival of Britain in 1951 and put everyday citizens at the heart of a new vision of national regeneration. They helped Britain through an age of crisis and their ideas might do so again in the UK and beyond. Out of the Ordinary by Mark Steens is out now, published by Harvard University Press. Historians of the Enlightenment have at the moment no need, our critic Jane O'Grady points out, to plead the relevance of their subject. What Horkheimer and Adorno asked in the 1940s, she says, is now far from academic. Was the Enlightenment a movement that sought to break the chains of religious and political repression, exalt individual reasoning and advance scientific knowledge? Or was the reason it vaunted largely rationalization, its universalism a stalking horse for racism, enslavement and colonization, with the Holocaust and eco-devastation its inevitable results? 
These questions have long broken out of the Academy, where we shall cautiously follow them now with Jane O'Grady on the line to guide us. Jane, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And the first thing to say, of course, is that the study of the Enlightenment and the Enlightenment itself has never been separable from from politics. What is new is that the right and left have broadly, you say, swapped positions. So how has this come about and, and what generally is being claimed? Well, I think I think it's as a result of identity politics, largely, um, and just just the sense that, well, a growing awareness of, of, of white privilege and so on. But I think it's it's so mistaken to, to blame the Enlightenment for this white privilege, for colonialism, for racism, etc. When without the Enlightenment, we wouldn't have got to this idea of white privilege at all. We wouldn't have had identity politics. But very often something which is allied to, to, to being on the left is, is moral relativism, sort of saying, you know, it's 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 a sort of liberal gesture at saying, you know, who are we to say that that um, that our morality is, is the best, etc. And I find it very sort of incongruous and incompatible to, 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 to criticize the Enlightenment and, and yet to espouse relativism, because if they're relativists, they've got to say, well, look, that's what it was like at the time. That was the best they could do that, that you know, that they were actually trying to change things, as a matter of fact, and trying to sort of get rid of the shackles of, of of the the church and 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 the kings and the and the and the queens and and it is ridiculous to think that everyone is going to be in line with all the all the things that 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 are currently morally fashionable. But I don't or know. If, I don't know if it is about being morally fashionable because if if there are differences of opinion at the time, do you see what I mean? Yes, yes, yes. That's a good. Yeah. Then that, that's yeah, not that's, necessarily about yeah, what yeah. we find fashionable now. That means that at that point in, in time, you know, um, this is just I'm pulling this out of the air. Hume said A and Voltaire said B. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's not about being morally fashionable. That's about what each of them thought. And of course, not everybody thought and said the same thing. And as you say, of course, not everybody thought what everybody thought was completely defensible and admirable and wonderful. So um, uh, Richie, Richie Robertson, um, one of his main contentions, which is admittedly not original, he wouldn't claim it's original either, it certainly won't be a surprise to readers of the Romantics, uh, is that what is called the age of reason should properly be considered the age of feeling, sympathy and sensibility. It's a nice uh, and important to be reminded of, I suppose, that that reason isn't the most defining point of this. Yes, and I, and I think it's interesting that, that for, with Hume, for instance, Reason is, is, is a very ambiguous term. Reason, which had been this sort of very aloof, transcendent, well, faculty or, or way of operating, was much more brought down to earth in the Enlightenment, just as the, 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 the emotions were actually sort of elevated and, and ad- admired and seen to be, I mean, this wasn't entirely new, but they were seen to be conducive to, to virtue rather than obstacles to virtue. Um, and, and crucially, it was never about banishing emotion. No, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think that a lot of the moral philosophers in the Enlightenment were very keen on the idea that it wasn't reason that was at the basis of morality. It, it was emotion, emotion as a sort of spur to virtue. And it's interesting, of course, this term sympathy, which is used in different ways, and, and, and um, Richie Robertson is, is, is quite interesting on that, very interesting on that. Um, so sympathy doesn't have the same meaning quite in the 18th century that it does for us. With Hume, it's a sort of mental mechanism that enables us to feel what other people feel when we observe them. And he compares us to very tightly tuned stringed instruments and a twang by seeing somebody else suffering or happy actually affects us. It's quite interesting. I mean, in, in neuroscience, they've come up with this idea of mirror neurons, that, that if somebody um, watches a video of torture or, or something, you know, vile and showing people suffering, that actually, unless, you know, you're a psychopath, the pain areas of your brain are most activated. Hume was really onto something with, with this idea that you actually have a sense of other people's feelings. And as he says, you much prefer, unless those other people are your enemies, that everyone's 
happy and, and, and content. I mean, of course, that, that doesn't deal with, with the Trumps of this world, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but no, so, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. As you say, uh, sympathy it wasn't a static term. It, it varied from, uh, from thinker to thinker, but it sort of ends up being some way between emotion and reason. You, you, it's something that is learnt yes. um, and nurtured. Ah, well, midway between um, emotion and reason, absolutely, I agree with you. I don't think it's so much learnt. Maybe it is for Adam Smith. For Hume, though, it literally is a psychological mechanism that, that precipitates us into what we would call sympathy. But sympathy itself for him is, is just this sort of ability to sense other people's feelings, which, which I, th- I think he's right that we do have. And, and of course, Hume himself was a very, just to be ad hominem about it, was a, was a very kind and benevolent man. So he would have suffered for, for other people. But he's also quite practical and saying, you know, that, that, of, that of course, if somebody's your enemy, then you don't feel upset for them. And that, of course, is where, you know, Hitler, Trump, etc., get in. Because I suppose if people are vilified enough, you cut off that psychological mechanism, which would lead you to feel sorry or somehow sympathetic in our sense to them. Um, Jane, can I ask about sensibility, please? Because you said that we had we were talking about reason and emotion, but then that there was also this idea about sensibility, which wasn't quite the same thing. Yes, I mean sensibility is is more. It's almost again a sort of slightly physical thing. I think sensibility is is similar to sympathy in in that it, in that it's to do with sensitivity, but not just sensitivity to other people, sensitivity to nature, to literature, to art. And sensibility was considered to to be a very important factor in in morality, because people weren't just sort of rational machines, and they were capable of some sort of sensibility which would lead them to, to behave well. Towards the end of your review, and I know this is this is a big question to, to throw at you, but towards the end of your review, you say um, what Robertson perhaps insufficiently emphasises is how much the Enlightenment contained the seeds of its own demise. I think we've sort of skirted around that issue. Could you just unpack that idea a bit, please? You know, I mean, these words are overused. It's a tremendous paradox and a tremendous irony that, you know, reason is absolutely elevated and your own individual reason can deal with important matters. You don't have to defer to some dreadful authority like the Catholic Church or the Protestant or the various Protestant churches. Um, you know, you, 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 can, you can do it yourself. But then in the very process of glorifying reason, they realize, and it's almost pivotal with Hume, that, that actually we are much more animal than we'd realized. I mean, Hume in some ways anticipates Darwin. The, the idea that actually, he says, reason is a species of instinct that we share with animals. Now, actually, he also uses reason in its more sort of glorified transcendent sense. But if, in fact, we're like animals, then, well, we lose the sense of our own divinity. Just as we acquire it, we lose it. And and I think that that's, that's very striking. I mean, you know, I suppose the Enlightenment will lead on to romanticism with a lot of glorification of, of emotion, but also to what Max Weber called the disenchantment of the world. And the disenchantment of the world would also include the disenchantment of us, you know, that we're not these, these great rational creatures, but that we are instead these irrational creatures and as Freud would say the ego is not master in his own house. That certainly seems to fit with the number of books that are publishing being published at the moment that that seek to reconnect humans with animals. I can't give you a title but I've just received so many books that focus specifically on how the human is an animal. I mean it seems so obvious to point it out but I, I hopefully you know you know what I mean it's about sort of removing that sense of human exceptionalism and, and, and semi-divinity. Exactly. No, I, completely. I agree with you. Human exceptionalism. I mean, you know, if you, if, you, if you think of the way that animals were talked of as if they were completely distinct from humans, obviously, you know, one can sort of ransack a poetry book and find some sort of 14th century person who's saying that humans are a bit like animals. And of course, where, you know, humans are often compared to animals when they were bestial, in other words, really behaving vilely. But 
the idea that we was completely different. I mean, there's that l- lovely bit in, in Dante's Inferno where Ulysses urges his, his mariners to remember that they're not made to live like beasts, but to follow virtue and knowledge. And so, you know, it, this, this, this idea that humans are automatically sort of noble creatures. And it's as if now we keep emphasizing our ignobleness, although I agree that we're also maybe pulling animals up a bit. Or, or maybe we're, we're just we're just actually making everything into a thing, um, you know, and saying that we're all machines, animals and humans alike. Um, well, I mean, there's clearly so much more to talk to talk about here. Um, probably a good starting point for me would be the 1000 pages of, of Richie Robertson's book. Um, but Jane O'Grady, many thanks for joining us. Okay, today. Thank, thank you very much. Thanks, Jane. Thank you. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye. Bye. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to Zachary Leader Jane O'Grady and Mary Beard final reminder that Mark Stearman's book Out of the Ordinary is out now published by Harvard University Press and the latest issue of the TLS is likewise out now with some of the pieces we've discussed on the show and countless others thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell we'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me goodbye Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.